Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who have put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Dear Sister, the International Bluegrass Music Association's 2014 Song of the Year, which was written and performed by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Claire Lynch. Launching her career with the Front Porch String Band in the 1970s, Lynch went on to release solo material before ultimately assembling her own Claire Lynch band. Dolly Parton calls Claire one of the sweetest, purest, and best lead voices in the music business today. She has received over 20 nominations from the International Bluegrass Music Association Awards, winning a half dozen of them, including Female Vocalist of the Year in 1997, 2010, and 2013. She was inducted into the Alabama Music Hall of Fame and has been nominated for three Grammy Awards for Best Bluegrass Album, most recently for her 2016 release, North by South. In addition to her own recordings, Claire's songs have been covered by a long list of bluegrass and folk artists, including The Seldom Seen, Patti Loveless, Kathy Matea, Cherry Holmes, and The Whites. Well, somehow we look up and it's Christmas again, and another year has pretty much passed us by. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, and a lot has happened this year. Sadly, again, we've, we've lost uh, a number of musicians and songwriters uh, in 2017. Yeah, Chuck Berry, um, Fats yeah. Domino, of course, big ones, architects yep. of of rock and roll. I mean, that's, uh, those are, those are sort of those iconic guys who would be on the Mount Rushmore of rock music. Yeah. And then you got guys like Tom Petty and Greg Allman who kind of came in the, the, the next wave. Yeah. Walter Becker in there too. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. even guys like Chris Cornell, just way too young. Yeah. And that's kind of, I mean, those, that's the stuff we cut our teeth on Chris yeah. Cornell with Soundgarden and, and, uh, you know, just, just a bummer when we see these people who they have impacted our lives with their words and their music and to uh you know even though they might not have been personal friends as fans we still kind of feel that yeah, loss, we take it know? on it's yeah. a bummer to, to think you know we're not going to hear um any more music from those guys and and uh you know i also think of mel tillis who yeah. who passed away uh like less than a week after we posted our our interview with him Crazy. recently and um you know that was someone we did get to spend some time with yeah. and and boy what a legacy and and sure is sad to see some of these pioneers um, slipping away. Every time again, though, it reminds me that, that there's something important about what we're doing here. Um, yeah, finding yeah. these stories and, and sharing them. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's fun uh, today to get to, to share a, a new story with everyone, the story of Claire Lynch. Yeah, this is an interview that we actually recorded a little while back. And um, I thought, what do we release? Because this episode is launching on Christmas Day. You yeah. might be hearing it at a at a different time, but the the initial launch is Christmas Day. And uh, I thought, boy, what do we release on Christmas Day? And I started thinking about Claire Lynch's album Holiday, mm -hmm. which came out in 2014. And Holiday. <laughs> right. Is that it? No. That was Madonna. Oh. But Claire Lynch and Madonna are often confused right, right, uh, right. for one another, as as you well know. Sure. Um, but you know. You are a well-documented Elvis fan. I and uh, we get a chance to talk about it. We, we pretty often. We work Elvis in, and, and I and I'm a well-documented Christmas music fan. I'm yeah. kind of a Christmas music junkie, and 
you know, this holiday record is cool because it's hard to find a Christmas album that kind of brings something new and fresh to the table. And it's got like the holiday favorites, you know, it's got White Christmas and Jingle Bells and It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, that kind of stuff. But it's got a couple of original songs on there, Heaven's Light and Snow Day. And um, there's even a, a Hanukkah song on there called In the Window. So, I wow. mean, it kind of covers a lot of bases. It's sort of a fresh and, and good thing. So um, that made me think of Claire, which made me think, Let's let's put out Claire Lynch on yeah. Christmas Day, and so maybe our listeners out there will listen to this uh, interview and then go listen to her holiday album on Spotify or wherever you get your music and uh, enjoy that last moment of uh, of holiday magic today. Now, now Claire is a a bluegrass musician. Are right. you telling me there's a bluegrass Hanukkah song on that album? I'm telling you that yes. That may be the only bluegrass Hanukkah song that you ever have a chance to listen to in your life. So I would actually <laughs> encourage people. Now to go listen to that. As far as bluegrass Hanukkah music, it's a pretty <laughs> narrow genre. It's a pretty narrow genre. Well, it was great talking to Claire and, uh, you know, just enjoyed having some time to spend with her. So let's uh, let everybody in on the conversation. Yep. Claire, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you so much. Um... Now, when I think of bluegrass music, I usually think of Kentucky or, or Tennessee or West Virginia, um, and I understand that that's not the region where you were born. Uh, so tell us about where you came from and your, your real early childhood years, and, um, mm-hmm. and reflect a bit about why it is that the general public often thinks of, of bluegrass music in regional terms. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I did. I came from... Um an area near the Catskill Mountains, a little town called Kingston, New York. And I lived there till I was 12. Um, I knew nothing about country music or bluegrass music uh, during my childhood. Uh, our focus was on uh, church music, uh, show tunes. Um, there was folk music that was popular. Right. So, um, and I did develop a real love for folk music. We got the Joan Baez songbook and, right. you know, we learned every song we could out of there. And Yeah. And so it sounds like music was a big part of your household growing up. Very much so. Oh. Uh, my sister, I had two sisters older and uh, my parents, my mom and dad sang in the quartet at church and my mother played piano. So they taught us at a very, I would think I was eight when I learned to sing trio with my sisters. Wow. Yeah, so they taught us harmony, and by the time I was 12, you know, I could pick out any harmony part, because I was used to thinking in triads, you know? Right, yeah. And uh-huh. and that probably kind of informed you creatively and started getting you into actually writing songs. What what can you tell us about the first real song that you actually ever wrote? Oh, it's a, it's a humdinger. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Dreams That Mother Gave Her Angel. Oh, Lord. Wow. <laughs> when I think about that. <laughs> uh, but... Um, actually, I started writing poems, you know, uh, mm. as gifts when I was a child, and my mother kind of cherished them, so I think that I was encouraged to do more. Yeah. And, of course, with the music in the house, it was just kind of a natural evolution to put the music and words together in a, in song. Um, we, I had a couple girlfriends in high school who were... It, this was after I left New York and was in Alabama, uh, who also were interested in guitar and singing. Hmm. And and uh, we, instead of going home after school and doing what other kids did, we would, like, 
holed up in the garage with a tape player and, you know, like make make stuff up and record it and have <laughs> <Right>. fun with it. <laughs> what kind of music were you guys uh, playing at that point? Yeah, Beatles um, and folk music. Yeah. I would say pretty much all of that. I, I really didn't discover bluegrass until I was, like, out of high school hmm. um, and 19 years old. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so how did you how did you first get acquainted with bluegrass music and, and and what was it about that genre that hooked you? I was at a festival on a college campus and um I was walking past a little concert hall that was going to have an indoor concert and there was a band on the sidewalk doing a teaser saying, "Come on in, we're fixing to play." And it was the McLean family band who were at that time um uh touring internationally. Right. You know, and um, and uh, representing bluegrass uh, for the State Department, you know, going all over. Right. And um, I heard them play, and I saw them visually, and they had great big old smiles on their face. <laughs> <laughs> and that banjo was, like, ringing, and I sat, I mean, I was, I was, I sat down on the ground and went, what? Hmm. <laughs> what? What is this? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, so. I went in to the concert, and lo and behold, some old friends of mine from high school were the opening act, oh, and they wow. were playing in a bluegrass band. Yeah. So we were at the end of the folk music, music revival uh, when bluegrass was included. You know, Earl Scruggs did an album with Joan Baez and all these other people. Right. And um, all those old guys that had careers in the 30s and 40s and were country music stars, and yet bluegrass stars... Mm. Um, we're having a resurgence of their own careers, and yeah. um, that was the bluegrass movement, you know, that we were involved, that I became involved in. Right. Now, I understand that you hooked up with a group called uh, Hickory Wind in the mid-'70s that eventually became the, the front porch string band. Um, now, was the the name Hickory Wind, was that in reference to the Graham Parsons song? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um you know that was he was real popular back then, and everybody's listening to him. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, but there were probably forty other bands in the United States called Hickory Wind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, matter of fact, we found out that there was a band on Flying Fish label that called Hickory Wind, hmm. um, and they were doing. You know, they had a national record deal. We had nothing. <laughs> so right. we changed our name that's when we changed your name well you know and I think that's interesting the reason I ask is because you know Graham Parsons was somebody who kind of challenged the boundaries of of both country music and rock music um, and I'm curious if when you guys were starting out with the front porch string band was there any sense of of a desire to um, kind of challenge some of the the purist uh, notions of bluegrass, or um, well, did that sort of factor into it at all? Oh, yes, absolutely, because, I mean, whether we knew we were doing it or not, we were just because of who we are and the products that we were of our own environment. Uh, mm. You know, we, we were exposed to pop music radio, um, and, you know, we grew up doing that, listening to that and dancing to that, and I had friends that played in rock bands, and um, you know, here were these um, country folk, you know, in rural areas who had done it all their lives, and I just couldn't be them. I had, I didn't want to be them, but I also, I don't think even if I tr- tried to be them, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to hmm. 
sing or play like right. them, uh, just because of where I've come from. Sure. And the guys in my band, too, you know, we were all like long haired, you know, we wore jeans and, <laughs> you know, it was a hippie movement thing. Right. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, and these folks were you know, members of the local Baptist church. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it was that. Uh, so they welcomed us in Alabama. Mm-hmm. I was welcomed, and so were my friends, with open arms by most of the people, musically and socially. Right. Uh, because they understood we were just youngins, you know. <laughs> right. But, but I wrote a song about that, you know, the day that Lester died. The day that Lester died, I hung my Sort of my penance after he died, hmm. right. I realized that I was struck with some kind of grief, you know. I really cared. Right. And um, I realized that we had been a little bit full of ourselves and mm-hmm. that we owed them a debt of gratitude for the heritage they'd given us. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, well, the Front Porch String Band released a couple of regional albums in 1977, but it wasn't until 1981 that you guys put out your first real nationally distributed record, which um, included a couple of your original songs, Come Unto Me and Hills of Alabama. about your writing process in those early days in terms of was songwriting something that was a a disciplined thing for you or maybe you'd set aside some time each day to kind of work on it or was it something that just kind of came when it came with inspiration it came uh sporadically and um no i don't think that i had much discipline with songwriting at that age Hmm. Uh, you know i was pretty young yeah um Matter of fact, I remember uh, Larry Lynch, who was my husband and bandmate for a lot of years, um, saying about Hills of Alabama, saying, you need to finish. You need mm. to finish that song. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> one day he handled me, handed me a pad and a pencil, and <laughs> he said, now, go in there and finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so I guess he realized there was value in it. <laughs> right. right, yeah. Um, I think I learned discipline um, after... I was invited to uh, join the, you know, the the writer staff at Polygram. Right. Mm. That's when that's when I realized that people actually took songwriting a bit more seriously than I had. Right. Right. <laughs> came in the office every day and did it. Right. Right. Sure. Well, yeah, that that thing of finishing a song, I mean, that's um, that can be a daunting task, you know. Starting <laughs> songs is super fun, but finishing them does tend to be where the grind kind of is, you know. Yeah, I've learned to love it, though. I really like that process. Mm. I love sleeping on it and waking up and going, oh, yeah, or, you know, like playing it in the car, you know, mm. while I'm running to the store or anything. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it seems like you're kind of hot on the trail. Right, uh, right. You know, and you're looking for those holes and you're trying to fix them. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, it's really fun to me. 
Um, well, the, the same year that the Front Porch String Band released that self-titled album, you put out your debut solo release, Breaking It. And what was your vision for your identity as a solo artist as compared to your role in the band? Well, actually, I didn't have a vision to be Claire Lynch. Um, I was called out by by labels and people hmm. who wanted to record me. Yeah. And I felt guilty because hmm. <laughs> I was all about the group, you know. And uh, But th- yet again, I saw all of a sudden I realized there was opportunity f- for me. And I treated it like it would be an opportunity for not only me, but the guys with me, you know. Yeah, right. Um, but as it turned out, you know, when I tried to get them to record my band, they were like, no. No, we just want to sign you. Mm-hmm. It was really hard, really right. hard for. It was. I was kind of. I didn't have control over it, um, except to accept um, moving a level up. Yeah. Right. E- either or give it up uh, for my friends and and family. <laughs> you know, right. that's a tough decision. Yeah, a lot of pressure there. Yeah, it was, and it, it never worked well for my marriage. <laughs> You know, it was kind of tough. Yeah, I guess when you're you're in a band with your spouse, that intensifies uh, all of those issues. Sure. I think so. I think it takes the right kind of guy to be married to a musician or or a woman to be married to a, a man who plays music. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we do have egos. Uh, right. I will admit that. Um, it's nice to be tempered by someone who sees you for who you are. That's good. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, they also they they have to want to support you in it. Sure. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, around 1982 or so, the the front porch string band broke up. Um, but other artists eventually began recording some of those songs that you had written for the band. Um, in 1989, Kathy Matea included "Hills of Alabama" on her "Willow in the Wind" album, uh, and then in 1990. Patty Loveless recorded Some Morning Soon on her On Down the Line record. how it came to be that, you know, six or seven years after your bluegrass band broke up, that you ended up having some of those songs wind up getting cut by these major label country artists? Well, I think I I, I would credit uh, John Starling, who was a member of the Seldom Scene out of Washington, D.C., right, and who was a wonderful singer and a real song guy. You know, he, he didn't write that much. Right. He wrote a few all the way to Texas, I think Linda yeah. Romstadt cut. Um, but he was connected to Emmy Lou Harris, and right. um, he was connected to Linda Ronstadt through Emmy, because Emmy had been in the D.C. area during the folk movement, I think. Right. So they were friends. And then John had gone to college with Paul Kraft, hmm. who uh, was n- n- now based in Nashville, and who had not only... Uh, written a few hits of his own, but who had published a song called The Gambler. 
Mm. Is it Kenny Rogers cut? Yeah. They made a movie out of it, a television show, right. and blah, blah, blah. What you might call a successful song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he he brought Paul Kraft to see me sing in my band mm. uh, at the festival in Alabama. And, and uh, you know, Paul took interest. He, had, he was taking interest in a lot of bluegrass songwriters because Paul had grown up with that kind of music and he had, uh, in his early days, played banjo with Jimmy Martin. Oh, wow. One of the one of the you know the pillars of bluegrass, right? <laughs> and so, uh, but he was also into country. Mm-hmm. And so he he if, when he found a song, he would get me to send him songs all the time. And when you write one, send it to me. And right. um, if he wanted it, he would demo it for me for free. And he and then um, he would take publishing. Right. But uh, then he would walk into you know MCA's. Um, in our office and say, listen to this, you know, because he mm. knew everybody. Right. So I was, I was really lucky. And he gave, he was kind to us. He didn't like ask for the demonstration tape money back or, you mm. know, recoup it or anything. Wow. Yeah. He just, he was very simple handshake kind of a guy. I mean, we had contracts, but, uh, and so I worked, he's, he's kind of really the one who introduced me to the Nashville community. Wow. You know, and in that same era, you know, you were getting involved in the community, not only writing, but singing background vocals in the studio for artists like Patti Loveless, Dolly Parton, Emily Harris. I mean, some legends there. In what ways did working with them and being around those artists influence you creatively? Uh, well, tremendously, I would say. Mm. Um, I learned that they were human beings like me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. with sense of humor yeah. and sense of style and the you know, very conversational and kind, you know, so I, I learned not to be afraid, first of all, you know, <laughs> or awestruck. Um, uh, creatively, I saw, you know, I walked into Alan Reynolds' studio and 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 saw how Emmy Lou was making a record, you mm, know. Right. And, um, I, I mean, it was highly inspirational. In the meantime, though, I was... I was writing on Music Row, um, so I was I was setting up demo sessions for my own songs, and so I I, I was in the studio quite a bit, hmm, you know. Yeah. So creatively, I mean, I learned um, the ropes of being in studio and and uh, what the rules were for putting a demo together, um, what you do, what you don't do, yeah, yeah, and. Um, what kind of songs were going to end up on my album and what kind of songs they were going to want to pitch to hmm. uh, mainstream artists. Yeah. There was a big difference there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I actually want to ask you a little bit about that in terms of, you know, because you did become a staff songwriter with a publisher on on Music Row in Nashville. And, uh, you know, there is a difference between when you're writing something for other artists versus what you're writing to put on your own record. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to as to how that kind of... Um, manifested itself in your writing when you would go to a session and you know how did you approach it differently writing for another artist versus kind of writing for yourself well so when i wrote for myself it was heartfelt you know it was out of my own experience something that was happening or or i was collaborating with someone who i clicked with um pamela brown hayes irene kelly we were having similar life experiences and we were women so we saw things alike Mm. Uh, but, but I was also asked to write with um, 
some other, you know, veterans of songwriting who, uh, men, that, you know, and I hadn't a clue what to do, <laughs> you know, go in there. Uh, but I learned, you know, through embarrassment mostly. Um, <laughs> it's a great teacher. You know, the, they were sort of emotionally unattached. Mm. It was more about the technicality and, I mean, they had creative minds, and they came up with clever uh, and um, ideas and all, but they seemed pieced together so that they sounded like the perfect song. Yeah. And yet, I don't know if there was any experience there except from what they pulled from their own and threw to the page in someone else's presence. You know? Yeah. But then there were... I wrote a song called I Don't Have to Dream with Andy uh, Randy Archer. I'd never met him before. Hmm. Uh, ever. I sat down and uh, I just told him, I've been thinking about this phrase and I hear Everly Brothers, you know, I don't have to dream anymore. And he just like jumped in there and I don't know, some people you click with and some you don't. But yeah. by yeah. the end of the, you know, four hours, we had a song. Wow, that's cool. Um, well, in 1990, the Front Porch String Band rose again and, and released a, a comeback album the following year called Lines and Traces, uh, featuring your original song, I Found You. I found you, everything's new, with each little song that my heart wants to sing, I sing them for you, it's the least I can do, you're more than a friend, you're my everything. The majority of the songs on that album were covers. And when you are an artist who also writes, how do you decide when to record your own material versus when to draw from other writers' material? Well, I think what you have to measure is uh, which of these is the best song. You know, hmm. I mean, do you want do you, do you want to fill your album with all your own songs and have... Um, an uninteresting record. I mean, are there other songs at your disposal which are so much better yeah. and still yeah. speak your mind and heart, you know? Yeah. And the, um, if they're there, I'm a proponent of recording them so that my audience can enjoy the album, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine of, like, that... Instead their way. I would imagine that takes a certain degree of... of setting aside one's pride and, and having being able to look at your own songs objectively to be able to say, okay, this song is, is great that I wrote, but this other one eh, it might just be okay. So yeah. I'm, I'm willing to set that aside and, and go with someone else's great song to put next to my great song. Absolutely. That's the way I feel about it. And uh, mm. when I teach songwriting, I, I tell them, you know, that's like that's the most important thing to to do is be self-critical, you know, and yeah. look from the outside in instead sure. of through your ego or being married to your ideas. I mean, you can turn a song that's good to great if you'll do that. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's more that discipline. Um, you know, in 1993, you issued Friends for a Lifetime. It was your first in a long series of solo albums for Rounder Records, followed in 1995 by Moonlighter, which earned you a Grammy nomination for Best Bluegrass Album. And I want to talk about the title track, Moonlighter, which you wrote solo. And it seems like all the days are getting shorter. Fight the time to make your pay. Give a dollar's worth away to make a quarter. But I believe 
the inspiration yeah. for that song? That's a pretty amazing story, I think. But uh, my father, we were having a family meal it was around the holiday or some special occasion. And, you know, I was long out of the house. I had kids of my own. I had a three-year-old. I was working a 40-hour-a-week job. Mm. I, you know, was holding down the house, hold, you know, like being the wife. Right. And um, I was touring on weekends with, with the bluegrass band, and then I was also, on my vacation days, riding up to Nashville and writing, writing with people. Wow, good schedule. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, yeah, I had a big schedule, and we were at this family gathering, and my father, who was, you know, a pretty committed Christian, hmm. said, um, you know, it was obvious to him that people's sense of time was changing. Yeah. You know, and, and we equate it to busyness or new technology. Uh, but he felt like, I think he felt like something in the cosmos was, and he was relating that to being closer to the light, you know? Right, <laughs> right, right. So that's why I wrote Moonlighter. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you, you really were keeping... A- crazy full schedule then but but the results were paying off i mean you were again nominated for a best bluegrass album grammy for the 1997 album silver and gold which features a fantastic title track which you wrote with irene kelly silver and gold strong as a test of time a love true as yours and mine is precious to And the two of you have written quite a few songs together over the years. I'd love to know about how you first began working together and what it is about your co-writing chemistry that works so well. Right. Well, we were at Polygram together. Um, we were both on staff. And so, you know, you have uh, staff people there who are assigned to certain writers, and, and they thought we would be a good match, so they huh. threw us in a room together. <laughs> uh, but actually... um I think she before that she had invited she had a deal on MCA, right. and uh, she had she knew who I was and invited me up to to sing harmony on her album. Okay, so she was kind of a fan. Yeah. Um, so uh, when I met her, we both had infants, huh. and so we were young mothers, right. and then um, we both went through man troubles with our husbands at the same time. Uh, for slightly different reasons, but the same kind of suffering, you know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and we were able to talk it through with each other. Yeah. And, um, you know, and uh, so, and then we've spent portions of our lives older and single, and it's just, we learned it, it, it's she's easy to write with. Well, in the early 2000s, you spent some time working with Dolly Parton. Um, I know you sang background vocals uh, with her on like The Tonight Show and Letterman and Conan O'Brien and The Today Show and Austin City Limits and every other show that's on television. Um, and, and you know, Dolly, of course, is a superstar, um, but she's also incredibly gifted as a songwriter. Um, in what ways has your relationship with her impacted your songwriting sensibilities? 
Oh, I think a lot, but it was probably before I met her, you know, because I was listening to her, to writing. Yeah. Um, I I liked her realistic kind of, uh, I don't want to say simplistic, but it, it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, um, she's just bearing her own heart. Right. And um, uh, she didn't have to be fancy. Uh, she didn't have to be Bob Dylan, you know. Right. <laughs> just, but but she was she was in a there was it was a time in history, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When I think some of her writing was even more sophisticated, though. I think mm. just out of natural gifting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then what was what she was surrounded with in Nashville? Uh, she's pretty actually a pretty deep spiritual person and very connected in um to what's happening in her heart you mm. know she she told me that she um you know she'll go uh often go out and just meditate for a whole day you know oh. out in nature mm-hmm. and uh to think about writing and what she wants to say and yeah you know she finds strength there so yeah there's there's something about her her approach that's uh very stripped down and unadorned that gets goes, sort of cuts right to the heart of of the human experience you know I, I think a song like Jolene is probably one of the most well-written songs of all time in its direct simplicity mm-hmm. but uh with that sort of pleading raw emotion you know it, it sounds like you are in somebody's head yeah yep and she continues to do that I mean she's she's done that all the way through her career, you know, I was with her during her bluegrass phase, where she did two albums that were, you know, pretty much bluegrass. Yeah. Little Sparrow and um, the grass, my the grass is blue. Right. Uh, so you know, it was a real break for me. Well, after Love Light in two thousand, you didn't release any new music as an artist for a long while, but during that period, your songs were still being recorded by folk and bluegrass artists like the McLeans, the Whites, Pierce Pettis, Cherry Holmes, and others. Why did you step away from your artist career in that era? Uh, well, I thought it would save my marriage, <laughs> oh, yeah. actually, because uh, um, I was called out to record and to be recognized, and um, you know, and it was it's pretty difficult on on my husband. Mm. Uh, he he didn't take it well, and over the years. Um, he blamed that for the troubles we were having. So yeah. I said, well, so just to show you that it doesn't matter to me, I'll quit. So I walked away from music wow. for about six years. Wow. And actually things got worse. So I, I finally figured out that it, it, it wasn't the music. <laughs> it yeah. was something else. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when I went back because I was really mm. lonesome for it. Mm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, after having received two Grammy nominations at that point and, and gotten a lot of, of recognition, uh, you know, you can see why why <laughs> you would feel like you're on the right track. You yeah, want to be... It seemed like a good idea in, to make yeah. music. Yeah. yeah. You were meant to make yeah, music. Yeah, but he didn't. So. Yeah, sure. And I was, you know, I was wanting to please. I had two children. Right. And, um, you know, I'm kind of glad that I got my youngest out of high school before I, I went back, mm-hmm. back in to yeah. playing and being on the road. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that in the long run, it helped her. Right. Know. Well, in 2006, you, you reemerged with New Day, which was your first new studio album in six years. 
um, and yeah. probably aptly titled, uh, sort of reemerging back into the scene. Um, that record hit number 11 on the U.S. bluegrass chart, um, and, and you produced the album yourself, as, as you had with some of your previous work. Um, talk about the difference between simply writing songs versus writing songs that you are completely responsible for bringing to life as, as both the songwriter and the artist, as well as the producer? Well, uh, first of all, I learned how to produce a song by doing demos, you know, through Podgram and Universal. So, um, you know, there was a learning process there. Mm. And then I was surrounded by really great musicians who knew how to sit and arrange a song with me, you know. So um, I knew engineers, and I'd seen the recording process already. Uh, So, I mean... With somebody like Jim Hurst playing guitar, hmm. who'd been years in the studio himself and toured with, you know, some really great country acts. I mean, he was just, he was, he and Missy were the, the backbone. Hmm. And it was easy, it was easy to, you know, to arrange a song and, and play it well. Yeah, certainly helps to have great musicians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just talking to Jim Ed Norman this week, and uh, I don't know if you know who he is, but... Sure probably shouldn't have dropped his name but but he uh he said uh, a good producer knows when to be involved and when to shut up and let everybody else do their work <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right exactly now one of the songs on new day is long after i'm gone which you wrote with pat alger regarded as a, a bluegrass artist, but you're not afraid to push boundaries. And, and I bring up that track in particular because, you know, I, I hear drums uh, on that track. And, you know, drums are not usually thought of as a, as a bluegrass instrument. Um, so as a, a creative person, how do you find that balance between working within a genre that perhaps more than any other genre really prizes tradition, um, while also experimenting and following that artist's desire to uh, try new things? <laughs> well, it's not easy, mm. especially bluegrass. And, you know, some people said not nice things about me. <laughs> yeah. uh, unkind. Uh, yeah. But I realized that uh, I can emulate other artists mm-hmm. and sound like cookie cutter bluegrass or I can be an artist mm. myself you know I can like yeah you have to make a conscious decision to be a product of your own environment and and uh, just express yourself the way you hear it I really have thought of myself more uh, as a singer and a songwriter you know a singer songwriter who just happened to land in a bluegrass band and it suited her her you know yeah, yeah. I mean my voice goes with the acoustic instruments I don't think I'd sound good in a big loud rock band <laughs> and it's just a perfect fit you yeah. know and I think that a lot of the bluegrass community who's my age and younger um were ready to hear something 
fresh mm. right. infused into bluegrass, and you can't stop its evolution. It's going to happen. Right. You know, somebody's going to do it, and I'm glad I got a chance. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, every genre has its traditionalists and has its moments when things, you know, get challenged and people fight against it, uh-huh. fight against it and fight against it. And then, you know, 50 years later, it's sort of looked at as the new traditional, you know, whatever whatever change has happened. So, you know. Oh, you, yeah, it's happening now, yeah. you know. Yeah. To see it. <laughs> well, you know, um, it, 2009 brought us your album, What You Gonna Do? And one of my favorite songs on that album is Widow's Weeds, which you wrote with Jennifer Kimball. And it, it just sounds like this really great, timeless folk song. Three times the flowers of spring have come and gone. Three winter snows have kissed the ground. But she has never shed her widow's weeds since the day we lay Abby Simpson's husband down. Tell us about where that came from. I think it, the, the phrase, widow's weeds, was something that Jennifer brought. We had written two, three before hmm. then. Uh, so we were, you know, repeat writing partners. And she said, I, I, you know, I heard this phrase, widow's weeds. And I said, she said, do you know what that is? And I was thinking tobacco or something. <laughs> she said, no, you know, it's the black clothing that a widow puts on when she's mourning. And uh, uh, I said, well, heck, that sounds like mountain music to me, you know, <laughs> like claw hammer banjo. And yeah. It sounds mountainous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we could write that. So, you know, we did. Um, she's a fabulous writer, hmm. really experienced, a hit writer. Yeah. And, uh, she is, has a reputation for being able to write a second verse <laughs> better than a first verse, <laughs> which is very rare, as, hmm. as you probably know. A right. chorus and first verse are a oh, heck of a lot easier than that second verse. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, in 2012, you were the recipient of a United States Artists Walker Fellowship. And for those who yeah. might be unfamiliar, talk about what that fellowship is and, and how, you know, one comes to receive it and what that meant for you personally. Well, it's 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 a really cool organization. Um, it's a spinoff from Prudential Foundation and, and a couple of other ones from people who have money. Right. who have realized that the support for artistry in the United States has been waning, and the only way that they could see to help perpetuate um, art in the U.S. was to give away, uh, you know, fellowships awards right. to people who were deserving. So the thing about them is that they give... Uh, awards not only in music but in architecture, uh, literature, uh, choreography, um, you know, painting, right. all that kind of stuff, uh, videography. So they gave, the year I got it, they gave away 50 awards of $50,000 to people in, you know, many categories. Out of those 50 people, only seven were music, musical groups. Hmm. Nice. And um, I was the second bluegrass artist who'd ever who had even been recognized by them. They wow. decided that they were lopsided with their. They were concentrating on jazz and uh, classical. Yeah. And uh, they decided they needed to 
uh, turn their focus to the country music community. Hmm. And so they did some research, and I don't know how I got nominated. You, it's in an, an anonymous uh, nomination, right. and then you have to apply for the grant. Interesting. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and yeah. then, and then you got your fifty grand. I did, and it was one fabulous um, experience. Yeah, that makes uh, any day any day that you get fifty grand is a good day. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> except the IRS got you know twenty five percent of that. Of course, of well, course. Yeah. First, you know. it was a good day for them too. <laughs> Everybody um, had a good yeah, day. Yeah, good day for them. <laughs> well, that was that was two thousand twelve, and then in two thousand thirteen, you released your album "Dear Sister" on Compass Records, and that's interesting because it comes after nearly twenty years at the Rounder label, um, and I'm I'm sure that was uh, a move that was um, exciting, but also probably kind of scary in some ways. I would imagine. Very much so, um, but I had a little help from the rounder people in that they they did want me to stay, hmm. but uh, they had just sold you know they had been they had had their label for many many years, and uh, they had they were all reaching retirement age, and they sold the label uh, with an with an agreement to cooperate between right. with the Concord. Hmm. So a lot of these independent labels that were like big stuff when I was younger are now owned by Concord, wow. who has a reputation for, for preserving their catalog and not letting it like go into the abyss. Right, right. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's why Rounder decided to sell mm. to them. Um, and they've proven uh, to themselves to be faithful and have a good track record but i wasn't sure yeah and they were you know the staff was uh, decreasing at rounder and i thought i don't know if i want to keep doing this <laughs> right. so that's why i moved and there were no hard feelings toward rounder whatsoever yeah. and you know it wasn't that anybody wanted to part i just felt like i needed to yeah sure you know yeah. work with gary and allison yeah yeah try something else yeah sure <laughs> Well, and obviously the the move to Compass Records proved to be uh, a good thing. Uh, your song "Dear Sister" was awarded Song of the Year at the International Bluegrass Music Association Awards in 2014. And the fog was so thick that the stones, river stars, could scarcely invade the and the dark. See when I close my eyes to dream was home sweet home. Tell us about the inspiration for that song and why you think it has resonated so strongly with your fans. Well, it was a co-write with Louisa Branscombe and uh, it was the beginning of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. It's been 150 years. And the next four years promised to be a a study on the Civil War, you hmm. know. And everybody was on the Civil War songwriting bandwagon, you know. <laughs> right. And there were projects being, I mean, we heard rumors of people, right, you know, creating projects, Civil War songs. And um, Louisa came to me and said, I've got a story. we got to write this. Hmm. So uh, she had three, uh, four great, great, great uncles who fought in the Civil War and their sister uh, lived in South Alabama, Union Springs, and 
and um, they wrote letters home to her, and she saved all the letters. And in the 1980s, uh, Louisa's cousin and some other family members were um, uh, selling the old home place, and they found the letters. Wow. And and they were so enthralled that they uh, uh, decided to uh, put the letters together in a book, and they named the book Dear Sister. Wow. And um, so we started reading through the book, and Louisa happened to live uh right on the border of the Stones River Battleground in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Right. And she had a farm out there. And so, you know, we'd go out there and write. And we just, uh, when we got through, it took, you know, a couple months, but when we got through, uh, we kind of stood up and went, holy mackerel, you know, this is this is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it, I guess, when it, right. we got a good yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. You know, singer, musician, songwriter, producer, band leader, you know, it's been quite an impressive career thus far. So what is next for Claire Lynch? I hope to produce, to teach. I have a couple other ideas about um, putting together some classes um, and uh, and also I have a, a website idea. So all of those things um, mixed with hopefully a heck of a lot more songwriting than I've been able to do with full-time touring, which has been overwhelming. And um, so I hope to to be more creative than I've been able to with the touring. Well, very cool. You know, I I know that uh, we appreciate all the the great songs that you have written thus far, and we look forward to uh, wherever your many adventures take you in the future. And, you know, we just thank you for spending some time with us today on Songcraft, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, sharing a bit of your thoughts on, on your music and your career, and uh, it, it's it's been really great speaking with you. Thanks very much, guys. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.